Katie, I didn't expect to be talking about Romancing the Stone in 2024, although it is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year, which makes me feel really damn old. Um, it's one of those movies kind of like Beastmaster, I feel, that was just on cable all the time when I was a little kid. And I feel like I saw this movie probably a dozen times as a youngin. Uh, but it was so long ago that watching it for this show, I was like, I, I don't remember half of this stuff. It's mostly impressions and you know visual flashes and things. Um, why are we talking about this movie? We're talking about it because it came up on our Argyle st uh, scream, stream. I said Freudian slip uh, a couple weeks back. Uh, I think it, it might have been you who brought it up as a point of comparison to a movie about uh, a, a female author who writes these kind of like popular uh, romance novels in the case of Argyle with spy thrillers who gets embroiled in a real life adventure. And I did not like Argyle at all, but I did have fond memories of Romancing the Stone. So, hey, let's let's revisit it. And that's what we're going to do tonight. Not necessarily a full on compare and contrast. We're not going to go bullet by bullet and bore people to tears. But I do want to talk about it. So Katie Glidewell, the blonde in front herself. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm so excited to talk about Romancing the Stone and its comparisons to Argyle, which is one of the reasons why I initially liked Argyle so much. I thought it was a fun film, but like the opening of it and several scenes in the beginning of it really did remind me of Romancing the, so the Stone. And then I've watched it um, a couple times, Romancing the Stone, um, prior to... Uh, talking to you and it i just love this movie i mean i'm glad you only watched it a dozen times i honestly it is uncountable how many times i watched this film it is it was such a cable staple in the 80s um i mean and here's the thing that i don't think it's going to be this is my conspiracy theory Watching Romancing the Stone, there's a number of things that I think influenced um, people, uh, millennials and Gen X. One, Michael Douglas is named Jack Colton. Jack and Colton are two extremely popular names, as well as Madison, which is from Splash. Uh, the other character, Joan 1984, Wilder. 1984, right? Yeah. Yeah, 19. And um, Joan Wilder. Wilder is a becoming a popular name for kids and all that stuff. I don't think that people realize like just, you know, the subconscious, like how many times they watch this, like how it influenced them. Uh, but God, I love this movie so much. I mean, yes, there are a few things that I feel like uh, kids these days would have an issue with, namely anything that's sexual and um, sex positive or anything like that, which Yes, there was a little bit of a sex scene. I mean, there was kissing, really, but not just some people that are naked on each other. But, um, yeah, I just thought this was such a great movie. And I wish that a few elements of this film would have gone into Argyle um, that would have made it even, I think, would have made Argyle, I think that would have really changed um, people's perspective of Argyle if they would have had a couple elements of romancing, more of romancing the stone in it. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it would have been a completely different movie had they done that in, in a in a good way, as you mentioned. But, uh, you know, watching this, 
a little bit last night and then this morning catching up for the show. Uh, I just there's no there's no comparison really in terms of quality for me because Argyle feels like someone who had heard about Romancing the Stone and said, I can do this, but without really digging in uh, to the genre, the, the lives of the people that the movie is about. I mentioned in Argyle, one of the frustrating things was that uh, Ellie Conway, the Bryce Dallas Howard character, writes these popular spy novels, but they're all called Argyle Book One, Argyle Book Two. You know, <laughs> that that doesn't have any bearing on reality. And even though you're watching a piece of fiction, you still have to be you still have to believe the world that you're watching when you're watching Romancing the Stone. Uh, Joan Wilder. And I don't remember the names of these uh, books that she writes, but we see like half a dozen copies of her popular novels and they all have the splashy like this was a few years before Fabio, but he would have been on those covers. You know, the, the, the bodice ripping kind of romance novels with these grand, you know, trashy titles. And I believed it from the get go. And I think it was Jeff uh, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight. But he mentioned that when we first meet Kathleen Turner's character, she's writing the final paragraph of her latest novel. And she's so in love with her own work and so moved by it that she's crying. She's in tears and she goes throughout her apartment trying to find tissue, but she's used up everything like related to paper in her whole place because she just she's cried her eyes out over this work. It's funny, but it also feels oddly human. I think it says a lot about who she is just in that opening couple of minutes. I totally agree. Yeah, she ends up finding a post-it note that says buy tissues and like <laughs> uses that to uh, blow her nose. I also like that when she's writing that chapter, she's got headphones on because she has music that's playing um, while she's imagining, you know, she has the sequence in her head and all that stuff. And I think it's funny that one of the comparisons to both, both of them have the shittiest shooters in uh, in film, honestly. <laughs> the only person that actually nails the bullseye is Jesse, who's only in the film for less than a minute as he's writing to Angelina. Angelina, another name. Yes, you can say Angelina <laughs> Jolie. However, a lot of kids named Angelina in the early 90s prior to us knowing who she was. Coincidence? I think not. Um, also, Jesse, there's a lot of Jessies now. I mean, I'm telling you, I think honestly that this film, like Romance and Stone, really influenced a lot of people, whether they know it, whether they know it or not. But yeah, as I was saying, Jesse is the only one who three shots kills all three of Grogan's brothers, like bam, bam, bam. It's like, good for you, guy. Everybody else. I don't know what they were shooting. They obviously were not. It's like if they were doing a contest to not hit people, like both um, Jack Colton and Zolo never hit anyone that they're aiming for. Not once. Not once do they hit anyone, which bravo, guys. That Honestly, I think that takes that. I don't know if that's a record that you I don't feel like anyone is actually killed in this movie by a bullet. Um, but yeah, I, I can kind of not necessarily say the same thing with Argyle, but there's for the people that are being like supposed to be like, you know, these world famous, you know, lethal weapon, lethal, you know, with their hands and all that stuff. They are not great shooters. They are or at least they can't aim the bullseye. They do it hand to hand is a whole different story. But as far as the guns go, I don't feel like they do that great of a job. Um, but 
So there's one of the other comparisons. One of the other things with this film, um, Romancing Stone and Argyle, the dance scenes you've got in the middle of the film, you have two people. We don't know if they're, we think they're going to be the love interest and all that stuff. They end up having these dance scenes where it like totally connects them. And just watching this again, I was like, look at that. I totally forgot about the dance scene. And with Romancing the Stone and Argyle, Romancing the Stone, you've got the mudslide. Kathleen Turner like falls and is um, ups up, you know, wakes up and her legs are spread. Michael Douglas falls into it. To me, the 2024 version of that is the Whirly Bird. It is, but I mean, the Whirly Bird is, it's almost unfair to compare them because one is a fantasy sequence and the other is reality, right? So the, plus I've seen that Whirly Bird thing done before in, in other movies. This mudslide scene down the, down the big slopes of, you know, Columbia where they're at, she happens to land in that position where her legs are up and he lands like face down in a puddle of mud, like right between her legs. It was one of the, it might've been the trailer shot. I know it was like when people would talk about this movie or bring it up and showed clips of it, they always showed that scene. Oh yeah. And that, that was a bit of realism and it's kind of unexpected. I hadn't seen that. I don't know that I've still seen that replicate anywhere before. Whereas the Whirly Bird, Whirly Bird style shot I have seen, in a lot of movies, but you know, I do want to mention um, a couple of things there. Uh, one, Jesse's shot. Yes, she is the perfect shot because again, that is taking place in the fantasy realm of Joan Wilder's book. And what I loved about this movie is you're right. Everybody outside that fantasy world is a terrible shot with the exception of Jack Colton, because particularly in the initial scene where he meets Joan, and he's kind of up on that ridge I feel like he's trying to scare the guy off and, you know, shooting at the the legs and, or, you know, shooting at the feet, you know, kind of like the, the whole like dance thing, you know, yeah. <laughs> shooting at the, the ground. So I don't know if he's actually trying to kill people because you don't get the sense that he's that guy. He's not Indiana Jones. He's just some guy who disappeared into South America and, you know, is trying to save up money so he can go on a sailboat. Right. He's not a mercenary killer. He presents himself as tough as he needs to be, but he's not. You know, that's not exactly him. Um, but whereas in Argyle, you've got these crazy scenes of, you know, Henry Cavill's character and John Cena ripping, you know, Dua Lipa off the bike and uh, doing these crazy gun moves and all this other stuff. There's no contrast with what people are doing in the real world, because, of course, Ellie Conway used to be a Jason Bourne type character and she can shoot and fight and punch and. Ice skate on oil across, uh, you know, and, and shoot people like it's just the whole thing is absurd and there's no contrast. So I'm watching Romance in the Stone like, yes, everything is perfectly in its place. I think that's the magic of I didn't I'd forgotten if I ever knew that Robert Zemeckis made this movie the year before Back to the Future. <laughs> like, well, come on. here's a little fun fact. When I was doing some digging, it's because of the success of Romancing the Stone that he was allowed to direct Back to the Future. He was actually going to direct Cocoon. The studio thought this movie was going to bomb. So they took Cocoon away from him. They made Romancing the Stone. They actually changed a number of things like stuff in the uh, 
the sequence in the airplane where they're getting to know each other, they uh, actually went back and reshot that. There are a couple other sequences, I think maybe in the dance thing, um, when they're like dancing, like in that little festival and stuff like that, apparently that was like, that was all Michael Douglas. He didn't even know he was being filmed. He was just doing his own little thing and stuff like that. And he, they thought they were having fun and they filmed it. But when Romancing the Stone um, became this huge success, then that actually, that's the first success that Robert Zemeckis had. And he was able to direct uh, Back to the Future. And then, right, because I know I know before that he had had some like attention with uh, I think I want to hold your hand, which was a few years uh, earlier. Used cars, I think. Yes, but yeah. you're right. As far as like mainstream blockbuster success, you're right. This is this essentially, from what I understand, and and you're reading this gave us Robert Zemeckis. Um, but I I do want to talk about that that dance scene as well. It if it was something that was kind of a stolen moment of like someone just decided to roll on, you know, Michael Douglas while he was doing his thing and, and Kathleen Turner dancing as well with him. I'm watching this and I'm not thinking, Oh, it's Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas dancing. I'm feeling the chemistry between these two characters who are about to spend their last night together, not even really aware that they have may have some kind of a romantic future. It was the the Han Solo type agreement. Like, I'll get you as far as, you know, wherever you're going on my clunky ship, but I want my money and then I'm going to split. Same kind of deal here. Of course, things turn out differently, but the movie does stop. It pauses to have this great romantic interlude and I'm all for it. And then I'm thinking back to Argyle. Yes, you've got Bryce Dallas Howard and oh, my God, why? Uh, can Sam I think Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Turns out they were romantically involved and they still love each other and all this stuff. And all I could see was the machinations of the screenplay and these two actors who I couldn't even remember. I remember Ellie Conway's character's name in a way now that I couldn't really, while I was watching the movie, I'm like, what's her name? And I think it's only because I put together the Argyle and then Conway thing. But that's because it was a clever puzzle piece rather than, oh, this is a really cool character that I care about. Well, and I, it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually had to look up, I knew it was Sam Rockwell, but I was like, what is this character's name? And I looked it up. It's Aiden Wilde, which that's a great character name. Why do I not remember that at all? But I also think that their chemistry was very, I don't know, it was forced. I didn't get their chemistry, even in the beginning, you know, the banter that they had with each other. That's usually my thing, especially like, look, I'm a Gen Xer. Uh, it's honestly watching the films in the 80s. It crippled me for relationships because I feel like, well, yeah, you know, you're supposed to fight. And then uh, then you're going to realize you've got so much in common and you fall in love. It's like, that's not that's not how it's supposed to go at all. That's not how all my favorite relationships start like that. And that's not how it's supposed to go at all. Um, but that explains a lot because my models for high school were Saved by the Bell and Heathers. I don't know. I was doomed as well. Um, <laughs> two wildly different ends of the spectrum. But no, it's that is a it's a good point because it that word forced, even though there's so much sort of mute meat cute contrivance in this movie, 
like Michael Douglas's character doesn't show up until like a half hour into this just under two hour movie. It might be a, maybe 25 minutes or so, but 24 movie, actually very good. 20, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, but the movie is about something completely different before he's even brought up as an idea. And what that is, if no one's seen Romancing the Stone, well, let me just put on the spoiler tag because, uh, I mean, why not? But so Kathleen Turner plays Joan Wilder and romance novelist. Her sister, played by the great 1980s supporting actress staple, Mary Ellen Trainer, um, she's kidnapped. Um, her husband and she had been in Colombia. He was looking for this priceless gem, this heart-shaped, giant heart-shaped, fist-sized emerald. Fist-sized emerald. It was yeah. It's when we actually see that. I'm wearing emerald earrings actually because. Oh, nice touch. Yeah, That's I was cool. like, what am I gonna wear? It's like, oh, you know, I gotta wear these emerald earrings. What? <laughs> <laughs> but so she, um, the, they're looking for this stone. There's a map. The husband is found out by these bad guys who want the stone. They, from what I understand, they murder him, cut up his body into little pieces, kidnap the wife. It, it is either the husband or the wife had secretly mailed the map to Kathleen Turner's character the back husband. in New York. The husband yeah. did before he before he died. It mails this map. Um, the sister calls in a panic saying, you have to come to Columbia. These people are going to kill me. Uh, you've got the map. Bring it to me and they'll do an exchange and all this other stuff. She goes to Columbia. This guy, Zolo, who is a mysterious bad guy he puts her on the wrong he convinces her to go on the wrong bus he kind of lays these traps for her uh he's going to kill her until uh jack colton shows up scares the guy away and it all begins as hey i need to get to this place to find my sister without any mention of like the the map or the gem or anything like that and he's like yeah i'll get you there for you know how much you got 50 bucks Hundred dollars. He ended up. Uh, they settle on three hundred seventy-five dollars in travelers' checks. American Express. America. Yes. Nice, nice product placement. Um, you got a deal. Yeah. And, and just like Madam Web, Pepsi uh, makes an appearance in this movie. Um, but so they're they're just doing this traveling thing, and it's the the adventure, the danger that she's in is gradually revealed to Jack, and he kind of helps her get out of these situations because he himself is also in danger, and they end up in these weird situations, like going to this small, you know, Colombian backwater town uh, where there's all these kind of like dangerous mercenary types hanging about, but it's so poor. They go up to this one guy's house, knock on the door. They are allowed in because the person who owns the place is a huge Joan Wilder fan. Turns out he's like a kingpin in this place. He's got this amazing palatial estate kind of camouflaged by garbage. Um, and he ends up, helping our heroes get out of a bind um we haven't even mentioned the fact that danny devito's in this movie and when you mentioned problematic things that kids today would not uh be cool with uh, anything that comes out of his mouth uh, in this movie there's, yeah there's so many things that come out of his mouth that are, i'm like oh gosh this is so so wrong but yet take out the problematic thing he i feel like is what Argyle needed. They needed that comedic relief. They needed that person that honestly had nothing to do with um, Ellie or Aiden, but somehow was involved. That could have been that like comedy that you needed with the action and adventure. 
And I feel like, yeah, believe me, not the dialogue. There's a number of things um, that Danny DeVito says. Uh, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier, though, that I think is very interesting is that I, which watching this film and knowing this film growing up, apparently critics panned it because they said it was just a ripoff of Indiana Jones. And I know that you had um, briefly mentioned that it's like, um, it's not like he's a mercenary or Indiana Jones. I do not feel like this is a ripoff of Indiana Jones whatsoever. Maybe because there's a treasure that we find, but it's like, no, this is a female lead that is going after her sister. This isn't, um, they are stuck in one location. It's not like, and I just find, I like after reading that, I was like, what did you, what did you critics see in 1984 that you thought that this was supposed to be Indiana Jones? Like other than it's what? Cause it's in a jungle. Like really there's not, I mean, you want to talk about not a lot of um, things, coincidence on it. The other thing that's very interesting when you said mercenary, when I was looking up the film, cause I ended up buying it on prime Apple said that uh, this is a film about a mercenary who helps an author. And I'm like, I in no way, shape, or form would ever categorize uh, Michael Douglas as a mercenary. He's a guy who's been in Columbia for a year and a half. He was looking for shortcuts to make some money. He was like, he had like, he like gathered a bunch of exotic birds that he was going to sell on the mainland for like $15,000 to like and get this beautiful boat which i guarantee is way more than fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> probably then and definitely now oh, but yeah. to see that someone labeled him a mercenary i'm like are you guys watching the same did you think zolo is michael douglas because he's not <laughs> like who are you what no that's not what i mean adventurer very lightly but it's like just a guy on the you know that kind of looks like um her romantic character in the books that she's writing yeah no that's basically what he what he is and you know i understand the indiana jones thing because you look at this movie came out in 84 raiders was 81 and as uh david wilt a commenter who i'll, I'll i promise i'll get to your comments in a second uh pointed out this was around the same year as temple of doom came out so the culture there was Indiana Jones fever at the time. And especially if you look at the poster for romancing, romancing the stone, what do you see? You see Michael Douglas swinging through the jungle with a rifle on one shoulder and Kathleen Turner clinging to him on the other. So Jeff, if you're passing by the lobby, you think, oh, this is an Indiana Jones ripoff. He's saving the girl. Whereas if you look at what happens in the movie, this is, and this is what I've been harping on for years. And people are probably sick of me talking about it when people keep talking about strong female leads i'm looking at this movie from 40 years ago thinking kathleen turner is awesome in this and it's not just because she's a badass she knows how to survive just barely on her wits but i mean if you look at the the scene where they have to swing across that chasm she gets across there on this giant vine and lands safely but you don't get the feeling that it's anything involving skill. It's it's luck. She did have oh, yeah. the courage to go across and try and escape the gunmen who were shooting at her, you know, survival instinct. But then when Jack swings across, he just barely makes it. He doesn't get onto the, he doesn't make the safe landing that she does. He's having to scramble up the side 
which if you think about the traditional movie that a lot of people, I think, might imagine this film is, you would think, okay, he makes it safely across because he's the big, strong adventurer guy, the Indiana Jones type. And then she tries to get across and just misses. And he has to, like, help her up off the side of the mountain or something. And she's screaming and crying like a Willie Scott. Um, this every there are so many points in this movie where Kathleen Turner is given a chance to shine and yet still has that very uh, human vulnerability. You mentioned the, the airplane scene. I love that scene. They find a downed cargo plane full of marijuana and they light it on fire to, to create a campfire and they end up getting stoned. But it's not even like played for kind of Cheech and Chong laughs. They're just getting very relaxed and they're opening up to each other. It's funny. It's charming. And you learn a lot about these characters. The one thing I don't think matches up, though, is that we find out Michael Douglas had been down there for like a year and a half, but he's leafing through a an old it's when rolling stone was still giant size and printed on newsprint i noticed the texture of the paper and he says oh man the doobie brothers broke up i thought oh he's been down there since like the the mid 70s or something i don't know when the doobie brothers broke up but was it really 1982 i know i thought that was a little off but speaking of that scene i mean i i mean there's i have a core memory of kathleen turner saying it like when michael douglas like oh you smoke and she's like i went to college i mean i remember that's a core memory for me because it's like you know what when i go to college i'm gonna be able i'm gonna quote that line and i'm gonna do it now what people don't understand it's like marijuana was not the same thing that it is now like this if people found that that you smoked um in the 80s and like even 20 years um down the line your career would be like kind of, I mean, it probably, who knows, maybe that's still a political thing that it's your, it's career suicide. They find out that you smoke pot. Sorry, not running for office anytime soon. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love that line when she's like, I went to college. Like she's trying to be cool. Like, sure. And she's like barely patting herself after this film is like, I feel like a quarter of the film is like her just basically in a way that's not sexualizing, but it still is like she's it's like a wet t-shirt contest because it's just continuous rain, like in the jungle and then out of the jungle and then in the jungle and then in a waterfall. And it's like, man, can you just give the girl a break? She doesn't have to be wet the entire time. I mean, I get it, guys. We've seen body heat. I understand what you're trying to do. It is still PG, but I mean, she can just be dry in some clothes. Um, well, there, there was one scene towards the end, and I rewound this on my my rental. Um, there is a mismatch where she gets out of the jungle and then she goes, to, she stumbles into a town. It's when she and Jack have split up, and she goes to make a phone call. When she's walking through the street, I was like, "Wait, weren't you just in a, a raging rapid river with mud and dirt and everything all over, and your hair's all fucked up?" She looked, you know, dis distraught but not disheveled. You cut to the next scene where she's on the phone and she's all messed up. So it was a bit of a continuity error. But Somewhat, you know, I, but they still had, which I th I know exactly what scene you're talking because they had like the locals who she heard them laughing. She kind of looked at herself. I'm like, oh, sweetheart, I guarantee they're probably not laughing about you. But that's like <laughs> just trying to put the female insecurity. Like, I bet they are. I understand. I understand, darling. It's like, no, they're not. Come on, guys. Like, really, is that what we're trying to make people think? But 
Romancing the Stone did a good job that instead of making Joan Wilder this damsel in distress, like you pointed out, like she got out of the situation because she didn't just want to stand there. Like there's, you know, when you come to the standoff spot and she like, is like, you know what, I'm going to make my own way going across the bridge by accident does that thing. She does that throughout the film, which I think is great. And I wish Argyle kind of would have done that more. It definitely seemed like, like um, Ellie definitely wasn't the damsel at the end. Cause we know that, but the beginning uh, she, she and Joan had many similarities. They both don't like to fly. They both are afraid of like different things. And it was very interesting, like rewatching Romance in the Stone. When, Joan gets done with her book and she opens up her refrigerator. I never noticed this before. And honestly, the 50 times I've watched this, but her entire first shelf of her refrigerator is all like medicine bottles and they're all turned the opposite way. Yeah, I know. Did not re never, never came to my head. It's like her top shelf is all like medicine bottles. The second shelf has one egg. I did notice the egg, yeah. Yeah, and but I was like, why have I not noticed it? And also, that seems really weird. Like, is she like a hypochondriac and doesn't like to go out? Or she thinks she's sick all the time? It's like, I feel like that was something that maybe they possibly were going to go into in the movie. And maybe they took it away because that would just make her seem weaker or something like that. When she's already sort of vulnerable, like... She's distraught. She's like um, obviously wearing a heavy coat in the jungle, which is not smart. Um, <laughs> and so many packing errors, so many packing errors. But um, yeah, I feel like they definitely, I just, I don't know. I just feel like there's so many similarities between uh, Romancing Stone and Argyle. And I wish they would have kept that up to the very end. Cause even at the end, you think that it's like, oh my gosh, Joan needs saving, but she doesn't. Again, she saves herself, as so does Ellie. Right, and they there is a the thing. The thing is, I, yes, there are similarities, but I still think Argyle is just—it's a tremendous cheat because Ellie is able to unlock the superpower of her having been a you know world-class secret agent, and they even do the—I think it was an Austin Powers gag we might have talked about of like you know, the, the switching on and off the thing that controls her mind. So she's going from like, oh, I'm, I'm a super, I'm, I'm a super assassin. I'm going to kill you to, oh, I don't know what's going on. Oh, I'm a super assassin. Whereas with Romancing the Stone, Joan Wilder is, is herself through and through. And we actually watch yeah. her grow and develop this relationship. Um, there isn't this like tearful, uh, when, when she and Jack, again, spoilers, get together at the end. First of all, there's a great reveal of him up on the boat where he kind of like lets the rope down and he puts his foot up and there's the crocodile boot. It's great, you know? It's, yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, so that's, he, it's a bit of, it's a flight of fancy for sure because that crocodile that bit off Zolo's hand, which was holding the giant stone, spoiler. it made it, yeah. spoiler, yes. Spoiler, yeah. <laughs> got, I got, I got the tag running down below, but if you're listening to the audio podcast, sorry. Um, but watch Romance in the Stone. It's um, a 40-year-old movie, guys. I mean, come on. <laughs> yes, exactly. But the crocodile swims away, and then there's the big battle with the bad guy, you know, the, the climactic one. And then Jack jumps into the water, I think. Yeah. And so we're meant to 
think that he tracked down this crocodile, wrestled it, killed it, got the stone, made the boots, yada, yada. I, I can buy that because that A, that all happens off screen and you don't think about it until you see the boots. And by the time you see the boots, you're like, oh, that's cool. And maybe it's when the credits are rolling or when you're walking back to your car, proverbially, you're like, that doesn't make a lot. Well, who cares? It was a fun movie. In Argyle, there's so much that I'm thinking about because there are things that are going on, especially the, the 16,000 twists. I'm like, no, this makes any sense. I don't care. Who's that person? What are they doing? Oh, they're not who they appear to be. That person, not who they, they appear to be. Can someone just raise their hand and say, yes, I am who I appear to be? That's my critique. Again. <laughs> I know. You did not like Argyle. I did. Um, I thought it was fun. And one of the things, you know, Catherine O'Hara... Colin Taylor, both two women who were somewhat mentors to the authors, both major influences on both of these women. And both of these women want the authors to go out there and like try and find some sort of love interest, which again, I thought was very much, you know, had that connection um, to each other. I just wish there honestly was more of the comic relief that was kind of like a side character. Even if it wasn't problematic, Danny DeVito, or maybe have Danny DeVito and Ira melded together. Ira being Danny DeVito's uh, cousin, cousin, yeah, who is the one who uh, kidnapped uh, Joan Wilder's sister um, to get the map because he wanted to find. Because no one knows exactly what the what's at the end of the map. They know that it's going to be some treasure. They know it's going to be probably worth some money. They just don't know exactly what it is and. When Joan, when Joan and Jack find the treasure and all little like, you know, uh, that's always fun. Like seeing them like go around and like go around the country in Colombia and find the different um, uh, things on the map. That's like, oh, we're close, we're close. And oh, yeah. The devil's they, the devil's fork is the yes. tree. And yeah. And mm -hmm. then, oh, here's the um, here's the. Um, flowers with the little um, thing. It's like, we're almost there. And it's like, oh, the waterfall and um, what's Le Leche de Madre. It's like mother's, mother's milk. milk. Yeah. And that it's like, this is one of the problematic things. Um, I'm not problematic, but didn't make much sense to me. I mean, that map seems like it's older than 1950. Uh, would you say, Ian? It's hard to tell. I mean, it really is a Goonies map. Um, yeah. But the thing I did like about it is that it looked really hand-drawn. Like, yes. Like a prospector or somebody actually drew it and not like it was an official map, you know, a, an official country map from like 1400s or something. So is the is the point that you're going to make, because I kind of had that, it raised my eyebrow, the thing that the treasure is concealed inside seemed like it was way too recent for... That map? Yes, yes, especially since the map. Well, and there are two things with the map. At one point, it seems like it's um, uh, what's it called when the plastic is on the paper? Preserved? No, 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 no. It oh, was, uh, it, laminated. Yes, at one yes. point, it seems like it's laminated, and I'm like, okay, then if it's laminated, then how did you get? I mean, that's not easy to like get the lamination off, but then it's like they end up folding it and that's the whole thing. But yeah, it seemed like this was like a map that was like a hundred years old or something like that. And then when you see the treasure uh, or when you find that there's a uh, 
statue and the treasures the in it. Like, the bunny statue, yeah. Yeah, it's like that statue looks like maybe the youngest it could be is like from 1956. Like this doesn't seem like this is that old or something. So I'm like, uh, you know what? I don't really care. I mean, I love it. I love the point that we got here. And then when you break it open, it's like one of the only CGI um, things is like to make that emerald look really, really green. <laughs> well, and I, I love that like later on, um, Michael Douglas shimmies the emerald out of his pants uh, he gets kicked in the balls, but it's protected because there's like this dink. And then he kind of like wiggles it down his pant leg and it comes falling out. And it's, yeah, it's the, the greenest green you've seen since the Wizard of Oz. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, it's incredible. <laughs> as far as the as far as the map and the bunny thing, the only thing I can think of is it might have only been 50 years old. That map could have been, you know, just kind of like beaten up and lost to the you know elements i mean it's in it's a paper artifact in the jungle so i mean i think back i mentioned the goonies earlier when they find um was it chester cobblepot the explorer that had gone looking for the yeah something like that yeah. yeah yeah they find like his old watch and his wallet and it's all dusty and messed up but that was only like i think 20 or 30 years earlier and it still looked pretty pretty ancient True. And even, I mean, if it was, I mean, I realizing now if it was 30, if it was 50 years before um, the movie's supposed to take place, that's 1934. So yeah, right now that's 90 years ago. So now when I think about it, it's, I know, isn't that crazy? That's 90 years. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to think about this stuff. Oh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the the bunny conceit, like when they break it open and they find this this gem, I I like that because it's so weird. It's a weird moment, it, especially like when they go into that cave and they see that they discover the mother's milk. I put this together. It might just be because I'm a pervert, but mother's milk. I'm thinking of like breast milk, and I noticed that the stalagmite or stalactite, whatever. There's a giant pointy rock that looks like a tapered breast. And it is dangling, it's dripping over this puddle of white, milky water. I'm like, that is really on the nose. <laughs> and they go fishing around for it, and they they bring out a bunny, which is a symbol of fertility. And inside is the thing that everybody's looking for. Oh, I didn't think about the bunny being the symbol of fertility. I didn't necessarily think that these, I believe it's the stalagmite, was the breast. I did, I mean, I, I feel like the milk, mother's milk, like since it was white i feel like that's why but i didn't actually think of it um as the rock being the boob but i mean you know maybe <laughs> i again uh, katie I, don't take any of this seriously i have yeah. severe problems <laughs> um speaking of problems mark hey <laughs> welcome to the show Better late than never. Sorry for my, I, I was trying to make it, but uh, having a lovely discussion with uh, the runner of the uh, A Night in Horror Film Fest and a Midwest Weird Fest. So that was a oh. fun conversation. Yeah, fun. Uh, he's from Australia uh, <laughs> and it was a fun conversation. I'm, I'm so looking forward to going to the fest next week, weekend, March 1st through the 3rd. It's going to be fun. So. But I, I, I wanted to pop in because I, I watched this again today, specifically. I, hey, so did I. Um, actually, speaking of horror, it, this is perfect timing. But speaking of horror, um, I for, before I forget, 
Katie, you're a horror fan. Mark, you're a horror fan. A little bit. Did yeah. you recognize? Did you recognize our uh, rustler guy, the the villain in the opening piece that Jesse is fighting in that uh, in that shack in the middle of nowhere? He yes. Looked he looked familiar. I forgot. No, yeah. He's um his last name is White and he is Jason um in Friday the 13th number 4. I actually ah, White. met him and yes. took a picture with him at Texas Frightmare in 2018. He was the one of the loveliest most humble <laughs> men I have ever met. He's in Friday the 13th part 4. My Favorite, I think, honestly, the best, the final chapter, the best Friday 13th. He's also in Starman in a mm -hmm. small role. And then he was in this in a, in a small role. And he was a stuntman for years. And he's for been, John Wayne, of all people. Yeah. yeah. He was in so many, so many. Um, Ted White, Ted White. Yeah, Ted White. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He played Grogan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was, you really see his, uh, his acting and his stuntsmanship come through because when Jesse throws that knife in his chest, just that, and it, it's, you know, a tribute to Zemeckis and whoever lit that damn thing, because the look of like shock on his face, it's kind of eerie, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it looked like something out of a Tales from the Crypt comic from the fifties, just like this perfect panel. And then he falls over and he falls forward. So you just know much like in Friday the 13th, he falls onto the blade. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, Mark, we're going to get to what you thought of Romancing the Stone oh. and any comparison you might have to Argyle. But first, we're going to pull over and look at this comment from, I don't know, a half hour ago from uh, from David Wilt uh, popping in saying, it's ironic this movie came out the same year Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was released. Mm -hmm. Yes, which we talked about a bit. We also talked about Mary Ellen Trainer, who plays the sister, was yes, once married to Robert Zemeckis at the time, and they worked many projects. One of my favorite TV projects was an iconic Tales from the Crypt episode called And All Through the Night. That was one of the, the triptychs of the pilot, I remember, right. on HBO back in the day. That was a great episode, um, which he had directed and which she had played a murderous housewife being stalked by a psychopath dressed as old Saint Nick. <laughs> and if you ever watch the trailer for Romancing the Stone, it shows mm -hmm. a scene not in the movie, which has Danny DeVito yelling at his partner, Ira, on the phone. How can you tell? Because that seems like all he's doing is yelling <laughs> at his cousin on the phone. But I'll take your word for it. Yeah, Mark, what do you, watch, what do you make of Romancing the Stone? Watching it again, because this was cable fodder. I'm sure you guys may have mentioned this showed up. This was on constantly on the premium channels. Oh, uh, it came out, but uh, we did. That's the first thing we discussed. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So see, you're you're great. We all had the same experience, but uh, I did see it in the theater. Uh, saw Jewel and Nile as well because my mom loved uh, Douglas, uh, and you know Kathleen Turner as well. And so I ended up seeing them because the '80s. It doesn't matter what the movie was rated; they dragged the kids to it because it was cheaper than paying a babysitter. So that's yep. why I got to see. As I mentioned in our show earlier this week, uh, I got to see Dune when I was seven years old. <laughs> but anyway, or, or four, no, yeah, with, yeah, eight, whatever it was, 84. So it would have been, yes, a nine. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, Romancing the Stone's fun. Watching it again makes me miss these type of movies. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where I was 
people said I was a little soft on Uncharted, the movie Uncharted. It wasn't a great film. I get it. That was based off a video game. But I miss these kind of just out there adventure movies. You know, we got something similar to that with uh, the uh, the Lost King. You know, the Lost uh, Kingdom was it or whatever with us. Yeah, with that uh, was uh, Sandra Bullock, right? Yes. Yeah, Mark, did you freeze? You did. Oh, Mark, you froze. Uh, okay. Um, well, Mark unfreezes. Um, Sorry. <laughs> oh, I lost. The, I don't know why I lost internet. The the world is hating me today. Um, you were mentioning but, the Lost Kingdom. Yeah, but uh, you know, I I liked these adventure movies, you know, and. This one, you know, it's not it, it's not being made to be taken too seriously. I mean, it, it's a whole kinds of situations. They meet a drug lord who just happens to be the fan of the author, you know, <laughs> and, and he goes on this wild goo chase. You know, machine guns miss constantly. Like, yeah, why even bother shooting with a machine gun? Because it only hits its target like, you know, like stormtroopers shooting. Um Mark, you and I, seriously, are we the same person? Like, I, I don't mean, know. Do you like, I mean... Well, and that's actually something that I had kind of, we'd kind of talked about this, Katie, but I didn't make my full point. But it's that separation between the fantasy of uh, Joan's books and, and the reality of it. Because, yes, I, Michael Douglas and Danny DeVito, even though he's like this criminal or whatever, he's waving all sorts of guns around. He's just like shooting wildly as he's being chased, you know, by the <laughs> by the jeep through the field and everything, not hitting anything. It's comedic and everything, but it's also realistic because people have guns and people use guns every day. But nobody's John Wick, except for maybe John Wick, or if you're a special government trained assassin, which nobody in this movie really is. At the most, they might be, you know, faux militia working for a drug kingpin. So I appreciated that. Yes, it would have been nice if somebody had gotten hit at some point, but I feel like there was a purposeful contrast between the world of fantasy where all this stuff kind of looks easy and everything goes according to plan and the reality these characters find themselves in, which, you know, you hand me a machine gun or a pistol when there are other people with pistols and machine guns coming for my head. I, I, I don't even know if I'd be able to carry the damn thing, you know, five feet, let alone shoot it. <laughs> um so yeah but yeah I, these adventure films were just fun they were just pure escapism and you know one-offs a lot of times are one-off stories or maybe you get like here we got a sequel jewel of the nile which i will say is is not as good as romancing the stone but it did um, have an amazing music video with billy ocean yes, yes. it did yes and yes. And it's funny because, I mean, unlike Argyle, Romancing Stone has not one song that has any, every, um, everything in this movie is all instrumental, which mm -hmm. I miss. And then you have Jewel and Nile and you've got Billy Ocean, you've got a couple songs that are like that. And then Argyle is so, I mean, I, I said, it's like, oh, you know, I like the m music in this film, but then watching Romancing the Stone, I'm like, man, you know, I miss that. I miss just having the movie be about the movie and like mm -hmm. having like that score and you know and that is alan sylvester sylvester yes. yeah and, i have um, the soundtrack to it yeah oh do you really oh yeah 
Man, seriously, Mark, between the box of VHS, like, really? Dude, I am like, am I green already? Am I as green as my emerald jewel earrings? Because I feel it with that soundtrack and the box of VHS you got today. It's funny you mentioned that because I just realized how much, you know, we get needle drops now during these films. Because I also picked up during Record Store Day, I picked up the soundtrack, uh, another, I believe it's Sylvester, uh, Summer Rental, the score to Summer Rental with John Candy. And I'm listening to it, and here it is, a comedy, and it's mostly an instrumental sound cues. And I'm like, you don't realize it until you go back to these and go, man, there was a lot of these had a score to them. It just was during a time when scores weren't selling albums. So a lot of them were never released because either it was too short or they didn't see it as marketable. In all honesty, thank you, Batman 89. uh, It showed that besides John Williams, other people could sell albums of soundtracks. Oh, speaking of which, I I know the two of you picked this up. I I didn't remember this. And even if I had, it wouldn't have made sense to me because I was a kid when I saw it. But um, when they find the mother's milk cave and they retrieve the stone, Danny DeVito pops in with his gun to take over the situation. And he says, we got to get out of here before Batman shows up. I'm like, Yes. Man, man, man. <laughs> you I know. Love it. And then look, nine years later, it's like, look at you, Penguin. Oh, the foreshadowing <laughs> that happened there. Oh, so good. Well, these these three played off well. And and it's another thing, too, is we don't get nearly as many. And Ian, we ran into this when I was crazy enough to do the 52 degrees of Kevin Bacon. How many during the 80s, late 80s, mid to late 80s, and into the 90s even, the same performers ended up working together in a film together, either minor roles or major roles? I mean, you have these three who, what, show up in War of the Roses uh, yeah, as yep. well? Uh, you know, so they did this, Jewel of the Nile, and then they do War of the They got War of the Roses in there as well, you know. I, I never saw War of the Roses uh, oh, it's it? great. It, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. You know, this actually was supposed to have a third chapter, but again, I want to deep dive with the trivia. The writer, Diane uh, Thomas, uh, Michael Douglas bought her a Porsche for writing and doing such a great job with uh, Romancing the Stone. She wrote Jewel the Nile, and then she actually wrote a third chapter where it's both Joan and Jack and their kids and they're going on this adventure to find this treasure in uh, the, um, some uh, Southeastern Asian country. I forget mm-hmm. if it's like Thailand or the Philippines or something like that. I mean, I don't know if they knew for sure, but her boyfriend was drunk driving and she was a passenger and she died. Before oh, the no. release, yeah, before the release of Jewel the Nile. Wow. In the car that Michael Douglas bought her. Oh my god. Yeah, and she was only 39. Damn you, Zemeckis! Damn you, Zemeckis! <laughs> 39, but after that, they actually have uh, a charitable foundation for her where mm. um they have like a Diane Thomas, I believe, screenwriting award um or something like that. Again, I'm doing a deep dive, so I 
I can't get this information on my stupid phone when I'm doing other things. But yeah, I mean, it's, I love this screenplay. I love the different things, especially Holland. I don't know. There's so many quotes that honestly I do so much like Holland Taylor when she's at the bar and just looking at guys like loser, desperate. <laughs> me. It's like, yeah, that pan yeah, across too, the bar too angry, too happy. It's like, who's this guy? <laughs> Hold your horses. Who is this? It's like, he obviously knows the guy that you were with and why would you want to be with his friend? It's like, ew. And they both have that same, like, like weird. Oh, yeah. It's like, ugh. but I love her character in this and how she's like the voice of reason. And also kind of like that, you know, hard push, like tough love, like girl, you need to go out and meet some guys. Like I'm your publisher. I am insist that you do this. And she, you know, it's like, I'm kidding. I'm not, I'm not going to do that, but. I just, I just care about you. And I'm like, see, I like that. (laughs) Well, and, and you brought this up, um, Katie earlier. I think this is before Mark popped on, uh, comparing and contrasting this with Argyle because Catherine O'Hara has a similar part Mm -hmm. in Argyle and watching this movie. I, it, uh, again, made me hate a lot more stuff about Argyle than I had even thought of (laughs) because Holland Taylor's character is what she is. Yeah. Whereas Catherine O'Hara, spoiler, yeah, she's the mom who's pushing her daughter to write these books. But of course, it's because there's a twist, another twist, and a big reveal and all this stuff. She's actually a secret agent trying to push this writer to spill secrets about you know where the agents... I, I'm getting bored talking about it. But if they had just kept her as mom... You know, good-hearted, well-intentioned mom, completely separate from everything else, a mentor figure who pops in and out of the movie, much like Holland Taylor's character does, I think would have been a, a richer story. If if Holland Taylor had turned out, oh, she was actually Zolo's plant working in the United States, playing the long game to get the map, you know, that's, that is the Argyle solution to that character in this reality. The long, long game for that. Like, long, we, long we needed you, but we do. <laughs> I, I'd also like to say for a comedy, adventure comedy, the gator bite on the hand is fairly gory for a film like this. I forgot how gory it was. I always remembered the gator grabbing it. I forgot just how gory they had that scene. And I'm like, oh, man, this is what makes me miss the 80s. <laughs> I thought about that, too, because there's 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 harsh language in this. There's. A love scene. I mean, yeah, it's tastefully done and pretty covered up, but it's still rather steamy, and it's also very intimate, which I think it's great because it's a love scene and not a sex scene. Where it's not the yes. whole point of it is to like, hey, let's get these, you know, get some clothes off these folks. But yeah, the, the gator bite. I had forgotten about that. The intensity of that, and it's also a nice kind of surprise because he's holding the thing, and that and the 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 most brutal aspect, I think. Is the one the thing we don't even see is when Zolo he gets his cheek burnt with a with his own cigar, he gets set on fire with a lantern, and then he falls through a metal grate into a crocodile pit and is devoured off screen. Wooden you grate. don't get much, yeah. but, huh? What's that? Wooden grate. Yeah. Wooden grate. Oh, wooden yeah. grate. You don't get much better than that in terms of villain deaths. It's a pylon, but it's awesome. Well, and one of the things I loved about that, because watching it, it's like, oh, you know, here she's like, help. She's like calling for help from Jack. And that's one of those like fake outs where he's like, he's got the 
uh, crocodile. He's like, you know, no, you big son of a bitch. I'm not going to let you go. And he's like, <laughs> help. She's like, help. And he's like, oh, oh. It's like, and he lets the crocodile go. And then he grabs the machine gun. And then it's out of bullets, which I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then she ends up saving herself. And that, I mm -hmm. think, is a great look for. I mean, you know, I was a little girl. It's like, you don't need the guy. You can do it. Look what you did. I honestly don't know how he even would have had the strength since he was losing blood by the gallon at that point. She uh, And the other thing, she doesn't get a single ounce of blood on her. Like, he has <laughs> a hand that is just like, he like wraps some basic cloth around it. That's yeah, a tourniquet. Yeah. He is like a gushing blood. He finds her, has a, has a like this wimpiest little switchblade I've ever seen, which is very 80s, but is also the weakest switchblade. It's like, really? I think Zola would have had more of a menacing knife on him. I don't know. To me, I feel well, like he was supposed to be like the Pablo Escobar. No, 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 no. He wasn't Pablo. No. Alfonso Arayo was the Pablo Escobar of um, the little town. But I feel like Zola would have had a much more menacing knife. Maybe, I mean, this is before a lot of stuff with um, going through uh, stuff with the airport. So I, he mm -hmm. could have concealed it. He could have concealed it well. But when he's like trying to stab her and she's like reaching for something and he's still trying to stab her. And then she takes that cigar and like, yeah, takes it on her feet. I'm like, good for you. I didn't see that coming. All right. But well, yeah, think, he got a brutal, brutal death. Well, I think the, you know, I don't know how intentional this was with the screenplay or the filmmaking, but what I liked about his portrayal, particularly in that final scene of the struggle, first of all, when Michael Douglas, the, the machine gun uh, he, he or the rifle is out of bullets, what, what does he do next? He runs and throws himself against this <laughs> pretty flat wall to try and climb up and get to her. It's not the smartest thing, but you can see just how desperate he is to get to her. And so it's just like, it's pure instinct. Now, as far as Joan versus Zolo, what I liked about that is that she is still who she is, which is a New York romance novelist who's found herself thrust into this situation. She isn't all of a sudden like handy with a knife or handy with a gun, any of that stuff. She is still intimidated by this guy who, much like Jason Voorhees, is severely wounded but still keeps coming at her with this knife there's a scene where she's being backed up against this giant brick wall and he's coming at her and i immediately felt my found myself in her shoes by the way i love that they hacked off the heels from the high heels why couldn't that have happened in the other bryce dallas howard movie jurassic world you, know, you, had, you had chris you had chris pratt there he could have done that but the thing about the switchblade yes it's a small knife but in the hands of someone who is a killer and knows how to use it and is coming at you, you don't know what the next minute is about to hold. That's a very intimidating scene. And I think that if it had been like, oh, I've got a giant machete and I'm willing, or I've got this big gun, the, the smallness of the knife, I think, underscores the heightened reality and also suggests, well, yeah, you can kill someone with a knife that small. <laughs> and that's you know almost what happens here. Um, hold on, we got a we got a another comment. If I can get my mouse to work, from Miguel. Miguel, how you doing? Love romancing the stone. Love the dialogue. I fell in love with Kathleen Turner. Um, 
How did that work out? No. <laughs> but Kathleen, what, what's great about her character too throughout the whole thing is when she is able to stand up or do something, say, uh, uh, rugged, you know, she survival-wise, survival instinct, it doesn't seem out of character for her. It's like the whole audience sees her potential of who she could be. She doesn't see it, but it does come to the surface when she needs it to, but she's still not sacrificing the character who we've established she is with it. Because the whole audience sees, they're like, no, you're you're a badass. You you can do this, you know, even if she can't. And it's just the way Turner plays this, you know, she's got that personality and that presence anyway in almost any role she is to where you believe she could kick ass. But as you say, Ian, she doesn't immediately become like martial arts expert <laughs> or right. she doesn't and, and become I, like, yeah. But there's a key difference there, Mark. And it's the, it's the trope of the badass female character that, we've been stuck with for the last half decade or more. Um, what I loved about watching her and romancing the stone is she does come out on top. Uh, she does fight for her life and she struggles much like, you know, a lot of the characters in this movie. They're not, we're not dealing with a whole bunch of superheroes like we are in Argyle. You know, you're right. She doesn't sacrifice anything about her character, but it's not like she is a secret martial arts expert mm -hmm. or something that just had to dig deep to find the courage, or whatever it is all survival instinct wits guts and intelligence and so i believed just about everything that happened to her <laughs> and everything that she did in this movie because i kept going back to yeah she's a writer from new york um and you know the same thing with michael Douglas's character we were talking earlier mark before you joined us about how this film was sort of perceived of critically and in some ways marketed as a new Indiana Jones with the focus kind of being on, oh, it's Michael Douglas and he's this adventurer who saves Kathleen Turner. Like, uh, no, no, she doesn't. She needs saving in the sense that she is in this, you know, place dealing with these dangerous characters and she doesn't know her way around. So she needs a guide. But she, Joan Wilder and Jack Colton help each other throughout the movie. And you mentioned, Katie, she doesn't need someone, some man to come rescue her. But what I loved is at the end, the characters come back together because they find that they need each other in a romantic situation. It's not like she's helpless. She chooses to love him and he chooses to love her. And it felt very natural. I mean, you could have easily had a situation where she turns her back on him or he falls in love with a sailboat instead and goes off by himself, as he had talked about doing throughout the entire film. But, you know, it, it worked out in the end, except for the crocodile. Well, and there's a scene where um, she's with her sister and Jack's like, all right, you got this covered. I'm going to go. She's like, you're leaving? You're leaving me? It's like, yeah. he's like, hey, you know what? You got this. You always did. Yeah. It's like, look, Joan Wilder, I'm I'm coming back. I just got to go, you know, take care of a, a crocodile for that boat. But girl, you... <laughs> you've got your own thing going on. You always did. And it was, it was just believable. It's like, look, I care about you. Yes. I've only known you for 48 hours. We banged, we found this treasure. We did a lot. We did a lifetime's worth of stuff in that amount of time. I'm coming back to find you because we got something going on here, girl. Just let you know. Um, I'm just summarizing. That's not how it was written. I'm sorry. <laughs> Spirit. Of Diane Thomas, it's like that's not what your words were, but 
It was, I believe that, like the way his, Michael Douglas's performance when he said that to her. And I believe that she was distraught. It's like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. I finally find a guy and you're gonna jump off a bridge. I just killed a man. What? And it's like, no, I'm coming back. And it, like you said, it's like they were drawn together. And obviously there was time that passed because she wrote a new book. She yeah. found this like new sense of self. It's like she had a beautiful arc that um, you don't see in a lot of movies. And I love that. You know what else though? That when, um, was it? No, it was you, Ian. When you talked about Jack, like climbing that wall to get to Joan. So Mark, I don't know if you, um, if you were watching, but Wilder, Colton, Jack, Angelina, Jesse, these are all names that many, many Gen Xers have named their children. Yes. <laughs> I think that were influenced by this film subconsciously. Oh, yeah. Maybe they did it on purpose because they <laughs> watched the film 50 freaking times. But when you said that about, you know, going up that wall, I just realized, oh, my gosh, do you think that could have been the start of the craze of like the indoor um, rock climbing that people are doing and all this stuff. It's like, did Romantic the Stone have it? Was that the perpetrator of that? Someone got it in their head. It's like, I don't know what made me think about this, but yeah, I want to like rock climb inside and like do it. I, I mean, coincidence. I think not, but I'm just saying. They need I, to have a Romancing the Stone themed indoor rock climbing place. Oh. I, I went to I went to a kid's birthday party. Uh, don't worry, I was there with my son. Um, oh, that's <laughs> a good. Few, a I few mean, weeks ago. I <laughs> I'm um, here for the cake. I don't know why you need to say "Don't worry." It's like yeah, right. no, no, until now. <laughs> well, well, no, I just, I can imagine I, I was at a kid's birthday party. I'm like, why? Um, but no, it, I was there at one of these adventure indoor places and I didn't actually get to go in it because I think it's more for kids, but I was thinking I would love to do this because it was, it was pretty fun. Um, but yeah, there is that, what I liked about the dynamic between the two characters is just as Joan needed a lot of help surviving in the wilds of Columbia, I I get the feeling that if Jack Colton would be transferred to the publishing world of New York, he'd be just as like kind of lost and out of his depth and in need of someone to guide him through that. So it's like these are characters with fully realized lives that are very different that come together and they have to learn from each other. It's not like one person has all the answers and he's like, oh, yeah, I used to be a publisher. And uh, before I decided to swing the machete down here in Columbia. Uh, no, he's just kind of a guy, you know. I think it, I think that's that's the key, Ian. You just touched on it. Uh, fully realized. I it, it, pardon my off the lawn moment. Okay, I'm old, <laughs> but part of the appeal, especially for like comedies, that I think is missing today is rather than them because even with the police academy movies, okay, the early ones, like the one or two, but even also from 1984, these mid 80s comedies. One of the things is the characters, while they had a gimmick, feel like fully realized characters. Like the writer of the script actually wrote a little backstory for every character, and they may not have come on screen, but they gave that to the actors to flesh out. So when they come to the screen, they feel like people. Everybody in here, even our bad guys, Danny DeVito and Ira. I mean, the the the. the 
you know, the, the dynamic between those two is great because you think at first those are our main bad guys and they aren't, but they, they are bad guys. They do bad things, but they've got this fun dynamic of family between them. And you feel that though, you feel like they've done this many years, <laughs> you know, even though it's a gimmick of the, what him, him always yelling at his brother at his cousin, there's still, Which, it just, the way the approach to these characters are, they feel like people and not just gimmicks. Well, it's also, it, it reminds me of another movie from, I believe, 84 or is right around the time which we've also mentioned earlier tonight was the goonies the fratelli brothers constantly bickering Mm -hmm. and and yelling at each other but they're also killers now i we're gonna wrap this up in a minute because you know we're we're bordering on giving the movie a run for its runtime but (laughs) who killed the husband zolo oh okay it was him but the cousins got hold of the of his wife somehow i i totally missed how like how those pieces fell into play they knew of the map her husband had the map the impression that i get is her husband was in business with ira and uh well not he wasn't in business but he knew had the map ira and his cousin knew he had the map they were going to come after him zolo also knew he had the map Although Zolo is far more cutthroat than <laughs> Ira and his cousin. Ira and his cousin are like mid-level. They're like Mr. Scarface. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good, <laughs> they're, good they're, mid, they're, they're mid-level folks who don't do extremely bad things. They might beat someone up, but they won't cut them to pieces like Zolo does. You know, But they wanted the map. And so however he got it, either being an archaeologist or whatever, he's the one that had the map and they knew of him and his wife. And so that's why Ira and, and uh, I forget DeVito's character's name. Um, but those two went after the wife because they figured he had the map. And okay. I, that, that makes sense to me. I just, it, cause the whole time I'm, I, I missed that connection the whole time. Like, wait, are these the guys who cut up the husband no. into little pieces? Cause that seemed really out of character. No, um, Ira, Ira, Ira mentions it even because uh, she's questioning on giving the map and he's like, Hey, look, you've got Zolo coming after you. The guy who cut up your, you know, your husband, or he's talking to her sister. He's, he's like, Zolo's the guy that cut up your husband. You don't want to give is- the map to him. Mark, this is my Ben Parker moment. This is a detail that I missed that was key to the story. Um, okay. Yeah, because he said it's like whether it's General Zolo or Doctor Zolo, he's still yeah. a butcher. He's still a butcher. Yeah. yeah, I I was probably just looking at uh, Michael Douglas or something. I don't know. Um, all right. So that one hair. last comment. That hair. And, and you know what? It's weird because I kept. There's something about his demeanor throughout significant portions of this movie. I kept imagining him as Michael J. Fox like 20 years on. <laughs> He's just got this kind of like a, a carefree kind of a thing going on. But all right. So Miguel also writes in with our last comment of the evening. The characters were well-grounded and a very believable story. And every character had depth. Yes. As yes. we have just established. I'm glad you're picking up on it too. We need more movies like Romancing the Stone. What we do not need is a remake of Romancing the Stone. No. Not that anyone necessarily would, but <laughs> yikes. Um, cool. I wouldn't well, mind seeing, though, the third variation of what it's supposed to be. Obviously, I mean, it wouldn't be uh, 
um, Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas, but I could see like watching this film, if you had to recast it to do that, I could definitely see maybe Emma Stone playing the new version of Joan Wilder. It's, it wouldn't be a re, it wouldn't be a reimagining. It would just be the continuation of the story that they weren't able to do. Cause I know they had it like written out. It, the, I feel like the screenplay wasn't fully realized, mm -hmm. but it's just the fact that Joan and Jack have two kids and then they're on to do their adventure where they have to go find a new, um, I don't know who I could see playing Jack, but honestly I could see uh, Emma Stone doing Joan Wilder. And I think that would be interesting because I don't feel like she's really done like an action adventure kind of romantic comedy sort of film. Let me ask you, because that's, you just put something in my head, that script for the third movie, how far into the future are we going here? Because when you say they're going on an adventure with their kids, I'm imagining, oh, you know, some squabbling teenagers. But, I mean, unless you, you could... jump far forward in the future, you're looking at like, oh, what, they're going to take their their newborns or toddlers on <laughs> <laughs> digging up the, the, the diamond of Dubai? I don't know. I think they were going to do like... Um like 10 or 15 years in the future so that the okay. kids are old enough that they'd be like kind of involved not like a spy kids sort of way but i feel like you know it's not like they're going to be crappy little kids they're going to be like involved in the figuring out the stuff yeah but i mean you know, it didn't really go into how far in the future it would be it's an interesting idea i don't know how that would work but maybe there's a new genre here uh, sequels to 1980s movies that are not requels, but direct sequels, but just with new casts. And I am not suggesting that we use AI to make Kathleen Turner no. you know, 30 again or something like that. AI would Douglas. not be able to do justice for Kathleen Turner. No. Give, it, give, it a, give it a couple of years. They'll figure it out. Those bastards are working on it, I know. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I would... I definitely check it out, but yeah, mostly I just want to visit the alternate reality where I could see that third script realized and where the screenwriter did not die tragically because of a damn drunk driving accident. Don't drink I know. Drive, kids. It just sucks. Like reading that, I was like, oh man, this put a real downer for the film on me and stuff like that. But then I think of Juan and Pepe, his little mule, and I'm like, okay, you know what? Um, this is what she wrote. I love this. I love the whole fact of that um, sequence where he's just so proud of his town and all of that. And he's like, this is my favorite pig. See that third tree? My brother um, planted that tree. It's like that house over there, that's where my mom was born. And I'm like, realizing this now as an adult, I'm like, you know what? I have a whole new appreciation for the sequence because he's just so proud. And he just wants to show these people that he just met and yet he admires and he loves. It's like, this is my town. I want you to see all the best parts of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The people are shooting at us. But look at this. <laughs> I love that detail about this is Joan Wilder. You know, I read her books to you every Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> Senorita Wilder. Oh. Yeah. Well, this is Juanita. Juanita. Oh. Juanita. Juanita, hey. <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to, to leave it. Um uh, on cheers and smiles. So thank you. I know we kind of strayed away from the Argyle comparison, um, and that's okay because we end up talking about a great movie that's 40 years old. I don't even know if it's had a really solid like anniversary home video release. I, I checked really, and you can no. rent it on Amazon, but I feel like this is kind of a forgotten uh, gem, no pun intended. I don't know, or maybe it was. In my VHS collection. I, I mean, this I was digging. 
the, I was digging through it. I thought I had it and I couldn't find it at all. And I'm like, I swear I had this on VHS and I can't find it. And I'm yeah. kicking myself because I'm like, ah, oh, I'm going to, you know what though? I rented it on prime. And now like a week later when I'm organizing stuff, I'm going to find it. I bet you I'm going to lay like, Oh, well, there it is. I just bought it on prime. It's four. it was four 99. I'm like, you know yeah. what? That's fine. <laughs> it was on wow. sale. Yeah. It's three 99 for rental four 99 to buy. Yeah, oh, I, totally I know. Right? That. It's still, it's still, it's still. Sale. They got the line. They got the line through it. It's it's nine nine nine. I know. Even but... even put together, it would still cost less than what it would originally cost to buy it by a dollar. You'd still save a bunch. Yeah, but you know what's going to happen though? Because it's the anniversary, I'm going to buy it, and then next week on Blu-ray.com, <laughs> like, hey, look, they just announced the 4K Romancing the Stone with all these special features. But anyway. Um, I'm not going to talk about alternate realities more. I'm going to talk about the present reality, uh, in, the one in which I just had a great conversation about this lovely movie with you, with uh, those who tuned in. Um, thank you very much for for hanging out and talking about this. Uh, you know, it was a huge hit when it came out, but it doesn't get talked about much anymore, possibly because the sequel came out and you know didn't do much business. But uh, yeah, check out Romance in the Stone, folks. Check out Katie Glidewell, the blonde in front. Uh, check out Mark the Movie Man Crotchek of the Spoiler Room and Special Mark Productions. Um, and if you liked this live stream, please like, subscribe, click the bell for notifications. Uh, I am Ian Simmons, and this is, I didn't even announce the, the series title, but this has been, if you like Argyle, you'll love Romance in the Stone, and I hope that everybody does. So uh, with that, I don't know what we're talking about next week, if anything, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks talking about Dune 2. Yes, I still have the bucket. No, I haven't done anything with it yet. Oh, that's okay. I'm having my only Fremen's page that's going to be up soon. <laughs> only Fremen's nice. Get it? Wow, that's nice. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Um, anyhow. Dune. Yeah. Yes. All right. I'm going to get out of here before we uh, kill anybody <laughs> with these puns. All right, Katie, Mark, thank you so much. Thank you out there for hanging out, and we will catch you next time, whenever that is, whatever that is. Thanks, and take care. Mm -hmm.